Hello, this is Susie Singer Carter with Love Conquers Alls. And before we start today's episode, I have a few things I want to share with you. Hey, did you know that you could supplement that binder that you use to communicate with your paid caregivers? You can. You can supplement with Care Trainer app so you can get the time back in your life that you so desperately need. Care Trainer saves care partners time from repeating the same information to a new caregiver or family members assisting your loved one. Care Trainer, personalized caregiver walkthroughs created by you. To subscribe to Care Trainer, look for the link in our show notes and use the discount code SUSIE, S-U-S-I-E, with a capital S. Hey, if you're a care partner to someone that suffers from memory loss, like me, you may be looking for tools to cope with some of the symptoms that are associated with dementia or some respite. Or maybe you're interested in learning more about improving quality of life in your household. Look, if the answer is yes, then I am so excited to introduce you to our newest partner, Memory Lane TV. Memory Lane TV is an interactive and multi-sensory media collection for people living with dementia and their care partners. And through the unique non-pharmaceutical approach to memory loss, the streaming platform induces relaxation, stress reduction, and perceptional sensations. Using Memory Lane as a therapeutic tool increases quality of life and makes it easier to manage symptoms of people living with memory loss. They even use olfactory stimulation to manage certain symptoms. And it's available on Roku, Apple TV, Amazon, or any computer or tablet. You can find a link in the show notes to try Memory Lane TV for free. And if you like it, spread the word. Memory Lane TV, the first interactive and multi-sensory media collection for people living with dementia and their care partners. Now, on to the show. When the world has got you down and Alzheimer's sucks. It's an equal opportunity disease that chips away at everything we hold dear. And to date, there's no cure. So until there is, we continue to fight with the most powerful tool in our arsenal, love. This is Love Conquers Alls, a real and really positive podcast that takes a deep dive into everything Alzheimer's, the good, the bad, and everything in between. And now, here are your hosts, Susie Singer-Carter and me, Don Priest. Hello, I'm Susie Singer-Carter, and this is Love Conquers Alls. And today is actually a very special day because not only do I have two amazing, outstanding, and adorable guests today. And I do mean adorable, but I also have an equally outstanding and adorable co-host with me today. And her name is Roseanne Corcoran. And like me, Roseanne cared for her mother, Rose, for over a 12-year span, starting as a, as she puts it, a stealth caregiver to a full-time caregiver to an in-home sandwich caregiver for her mother in her final six years. And after finding herself a part of this growing caregiving community like me and in need of both support and critical information, she has conducted an exhaustive research into caregiving strategies for aging parents. And to assist the community and share information and provide support, Roseanne started a regional daughterhood circle, which is incredible. Look it up and will be in the show notes. It's a wonderful organization in the Philadelphia suburbs in 2019. And then in November of that year, she created Daughterhood, the podcast. You can also visit Roseanne on her website, heyro.com for caregiver information, inspiration, and a little company. I want to emphasize a little because I've become very possessive of this woman as my new BFF, and you're about to see why. So please welcome Roseanne Corcoran. Thank you, Susie. Susie, so much fun. 
I've looked forward to this all week, Susie, to be on the be on the same uh, in the same show with you is just too exciting Aww. for me. So thank well, thank you for the opportunity. Well, I love this is the best part of of being one of the best parts of being part of this community is meeting really really fabulous, fun, loving, heart centered people like Roseanne who brings a whole she ha- her podcast is amazing, and she brings a whole other perspective and voice to to what we're we talk about all the time and that's what's so great about this community because everybody has a voice and no no two situations are alike so you try to find voices that resonate with you and and maybe a lot of them do and maybe just one but honestly this lady is is fantastic and i have leaned on her so much that i can't believe that she still likes me so <laughs> <laughs> She has been my rock during this whole thing with my mom and the hospice situation. And actually the whole, which is why I wanted her on this, this particular episode, because we're going to be talking about this nursing home crisis, which is all part of a system that we're all, we're all up against. And um, so she has her experience. I have my experience and then our two amazing guests have their experience, right? Absolutely. So very excited to talk to them. Yeah. And Roseanne lost her mom about a year ago. So her journey is from that perspective over her shoulder, but still well in it, still well well in the grief and the, Mm -hmm. you know, looking back in the assessment of the whole, of the whole process. Right. Yes, absolutely. And I, you know, I cared for her at home, but I still have experience and no a lot of people who have gone down the same road that you're in, Susie, mm-hmm. for, you know, in that trying to navigate the entire system. And anyway, if you're at home or if you're at a community, it's still the same system. Yeah. There's definitely differences, but overall, as, as we will find out with Rick and John, it's a system and, and um, we're up. It's it hard. hard. It's hard. It's hard. Yeah. Whether mm-hmm. you have it at home mm-hmm. or not, because you're still, that system is still that system. So the you're still a commodity. Still a commodity. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, let's, I think we should just jump into it because I want to just get into it. Let's so. Absolutely. And I just, we're, this is a part two, which is very exciting for us. And th- this is uh, my first part two, I believe. Um, in episode 51, if you haven't listened to it, please do. We dropped it just earlier in January this year. And Don, my my uh, my loving co-host who is busy golfing today, thank- <laughs> and well-deserved, <laughs> and I spoke with Rick Montcastle, who is the Assistant Attorney General for the Commonwealth of Virginia and the retired federal prosecutor, and in my humble opinion, a bona fide hero. And I mean that totally. And Rick, along with his partner, Randy Ramsire, led the investigation and prosecution of Purdue Pharma, which was falsely marketing OxyContin, which my family was also a victim of. My brother was addicted to it. And it's a, it's a horrific drug. This case was the center of Dope Sick, which was a riveting Hulu miniseries of the same name in which Rick is beautifully, beautifully portrayed by Peter Sarsgaard. And I literally gasped out loud in episode nine when I found out that they announced that their next case is going to be going after Abbott Labs, right? Yes. Who are falsely marketing Depakote, another yes. drug that my family's been a victim to. <laughs> it's a drug that's supposed to treat epilepsy. But instead, they were targeting nursing homes to treat 
agitation, which is associated with dementia and Alzheimer's, which my mom was exhibiting and was falsely uh, diagnosed when she was going to a doctor's appointment as um, some kind of mental breakdown. And they locked her up into, you know, a, a mental hold for 72 hours, which turned out to be seven days. <sighs> it just makes your heart feel so a little bit lighter that there's people out there that actually care. Absolutely. It gives you hope in, in that there is someone who has integrity and honesty and wants to stand up for the right yeah. thing. And it just, it gives me, it gives me uh, yeah, hope, it gives everybody hope that there are still people out there. Yeah. Yes. And Danny Strong, who wrote and directed it was such a, he did such a great job of putting a face to this crisis, you know, a face is actually not a face, a lot of faces. Many. And that's what we're trying to do with Love Conquers Alls and, and uh, Daughterhood, the podcast. So we're so grateful to have Rick Montcastle back again to continue this important conversation that we started before, along with one of his lead investigators, John Pierce. But let me just brag on John a little bit. So from 1973 to 2005, John Pierce was employed as a special agent, a criminal investigator with the Criminal Investigation Division of the IRS in Western Virginia, Eastern Tennessee, and Western North Carolina. He investigated numerous cases of tax fraud, as well as financial crimes associated with illegal activities, including drug trafficking, gambling, manufacturing of illegal liquor, cigarette smuggling, and investment fraud. In 2007, John was hired as a criminal investigator by the Virginia Office of the Attorney General Medicaid Fraud Control Unit. In 2013, he was promoted to investigative supervisor. He assisted in several healthcare fraud investigations of providers, including physicians, pharmaceutical companies, nursing homes, and pain clinics. Many of these investigations were conducted in conjunction with the U.S. Attorney's Office before he retired in 2021. Not only did they find that Abbott Labs was not the only pharma targeting nursing homes, they witnessed firsthand the negative consequences of understaffing, which is unfortunately too common in too many nursing homes, where people are viewed as commodities and compassion as a liability. And since COVID, we've seen the resident-to-staff member ratio exponentially increase out of control, resulting in a huge uptick in the cases of nursing home neglect and abuse. Now, obviously, there's amazing places. My mom has been at them, and they're very competent and caring and compassionate. But that's also not to say that these other situations don't occur and occur too often. So without further ado, please, please, please help me welcome the Honorable mm -hmm. Attorney General Rick Montpessel and his ace investigator, John Pierce. Hey, guys. Susie. Hey, Roseanne. Thank you for being here. And I know you have to do your disclaimer. <laughs> yes, and I, I, am, I am currently an, the, an assistant attorney general with the Virginia Attorney General's office. Uh, I'm actually going to be leaving that position sometime in June. Uh, it's time for me to maybe go off to pasture. But I needed to say this disclaimer because I'm still working for him, and that is that any of my statements or comments during this podcast are my personal views uh, or opinions and are not in any way related to my position with the Office of the Attorney General. So that's the legal disclaimer. So back off, everybody. <laughs> We're just having yeah, a conversation. Yeah, we're just That's chatting. Talk, talk amongst <laughs> yourselves. John, thank you for coming. I know, I, I don't know if you've done a, a podcast before, but I don't think so. I think, I think we're your first. Is that correct? 
I think that's correct. I'm glad to be here today. Um, appreciate the opportunity, but yeah, this is this is my first experience with this. Well, it's it's we're we're delighted to have you, and we're delighted mm-hmm. to meet such a lovely person with such a gigantic heart. And um, I love your accent. And uh, <laughs> some, things, some things you just gotta live with. You gotta live with it. Yeah. I'm so um, I just want to just jump in. Roseanne, do you want to start talking? Yeah. yeah. Sure. I mean, you know, I think that we all as as people, as like caregivers, as people that are our advocates, we feel like the healthcare system is here to help us in some way, shape, or form. We take our our parents, our spouses, our children, what whoever, and we go into the healthcare system and think that we're going to work together to solve this problem or to solve whatever issue that we have. And as, as both of you have pointed out, it's more that it's a system than, than an actual cooperation between us. It's not about patient-centered care. It's kind of moved into spreadsheet care, unfortunately. And I don't know if you can talk about that a, a little bit as how the, it's a system now instead of what we're hoping for. One thing that Susie said was, uh, that she was lamenting that in dealing with healthcare providers with regard to her mother's situation, she's had to become the bad person or the bad guy. That is the person who is raising a ruckus, questioning the healthcare providers, um, maybe even having to raise her voice, uh, be somebody that she is not does not want to be and is not naturally. But in order to make sure her mother is properly cared for, she's got to turn into this other person who might be viewed as mean and nasty uh, when on the people on the receiving end. Let me just comment about that and the need to do that. You know, she's having to do that. And many of the people listening to your podcast, who are this podcast, who are caregivers, end up having to do that because they are fighting not that individual healthcare provider, not that nurse, not that doctor, but basically a system that is in place that is not designed to provide care on an individualized basis. It is designed to provide care on a mass basis. And your particular loved one who you are there to care for is not viewed on an individual basis. And so all of those people that you're having to deal with are part of this system. They have pressures coming from the system. Uh, For example, uh, nurses and um, CNAs and LPNs that are in direct care in a skilled nursing facility also, or we call a nursing home, have pressures to get things done with a limited amount of staff. And so they're they're responding to that pressure as part of this system that is designed to basically turn your loved one into just a a spreadsheet number, okay? And so when you find yourself, and I say this to all the listeners, turning into someone that you wouldn't necessarily like because you have to be loud and maybe aggressive and sometimes even mean, recognize that you're having to do that because of the system, not because of the oftentimes understaffed and individually beleaguered healthcare provider. 
That's such a good, that's a, that's a really important point because I, and I know that, and, and even though I know that, and I've said it to the staff and I've said, I know you're understaffed and just bear with me. I'm trying the best to be, you know, to help you help me. And, and still, you know, when, when emotions run high, you just think, come on, does it, am I the only one that sees this? You know, and is anyone going to say anything? And it's hard because you, my heart breaks for them. It really does. But then you're in survival in a way. So you're, you're stuck between a rock and a hard place. So you said that just right, you know? Yeah, you have to do it. You have to do what you have to do. Yeah. And John, I don't know if you have any. <clears throat> you know, the reality is you have to do this because I think what we're dealing with in the system <clears throat> is you have... Um, by the time the resource gets down to the level of the caregiver, that resource goes through a lot of parameters that are set by sections higher up. And what you have by the time the resource gets down to the application level in the nursing home, the care being given to the patient, those caregivers at that first line level are basically, in most cases, not given enough resource to meet the need that's there through no fault largely, and a lot of the time, it's no fault of their own. So because the resource has been limited along the way, now you're at the position where it's being delivered and the resource is just not there. It's insufficient. And a lot of the reason behind that is the money angle, the profit angle. Uh, decisions are made higher up to, to maximize profits. And that impacts directly on the amount of resource care that is delivered to the people down at the ground level. So, um, like Rick said, you know, we see a lot of the problem begins higher up. It's not all occurring down here on the ground level. Um, so that 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 is is part of the problem in the system. It is, and it, and and it and it's confusing because there are. It can be at the bottom level, at that level. It can be on the one, you know, and and we can't, so it's hard because you can't dismiss it one for the other, although most of it is coming from the top down. And I and I have seen that, you know, I I witnessed it just recently in terms of just this poor woman, this poor young nurse being thrown out on her own to take care of my mom on the floor at night and making a huge mistake. And basically, she she was it was she was so she was so frazzled. She it was her first time alone on the floor, and she said, uh, "I don't know what I'm doing." And when I brought it up to her supervisors and and the, and the organization, it was like, "It's a training problem. Your mom's okay. We got it under control. Thank you for pointing it out." So, you know, we used to be able to rely on physicians and other healthcare providers because they have the knowledge, right? They know how to treat patients, what's, you know, we, we think what's in the best interest of your, your loved one. Mm-hmm. But I think that the profit motive, the, the money aspect of it, uh, especially now has changed things quite a bit. All right. So for example, uh, if a you're, you have a loved one that is um, living in a skilled nursing facility and there's a change in medicine, okay? And uh, because there's some issue that's come up with them, 
they're giving up specific medicine. And if you, as a, uh, as the loved one, the person who's looking out for, for your loved one, go and ask, why are they getting this particular medicine? Like in your example, Susie, why have you prescribed Depakote? The answer you're probably going to get is the answer from the system, which is the doctor has determined that this is uh, the best medicine for this problem for your loved one. Mm -hmm. And you as a lay person would tend to, I think, uh, go along with that because, hey, the doctor knows best. Well, that I don't think is, is how you can approach these things nowadays because of the system in place. One of the, one of the things that uh, is out there in almost every nursing home is that they have a, what's called a drug formulary. And so they have a certain uh, list of drugs that they prescribe for, that they say, this is our formulary these drugs are what we're going to give for whatever particular ailments there are that those drugs are assigned to. And that's it. Okay. And the reason they, that many of those facilities have those drugs on their formulary is because the pharmaceutical company and, or the in-house pharmacy, um, and I used to be the two big ones were Omnicare and Pharmerica. I don't know if there are more nowadays, uh, and or there, there's a rebate system where if they put the, the nursing home puts that drug on the formulary, the pharmaceutical company and or and the, uh, the uh, pharmacy are going to exchange money and there's going to be a rebate and the nursing home may get a rebate. Right. So what you have to be aware of when dealing with healthcare providers in a skilled nursing situation who are prescribing drugs is you have to be aware that that prescription or that drug might be getting uh, dispensed to your loved one, not because it's in their best interest, but because it's on the formulary and it is financially profitable for that nursing home to use that drug off of its formulary because they're getting a rebate from a pharmaceutical company or a, a pharmacy. Uh, so the, what, but what us as normal you know, lay people who don't have medical training, we're thinking, oh, the doctor's going to make, or that nursing home's going to make that decision based on what's best for my loved one. Not necessarily the case. Now, I'm not going to say that they're going to do it in all situations, but you have to understand that part of the system is this financial pressure to get rebates from the, the pharmaceutical chain, from the pharmaceutical company and or the uh, pharmacy to prescribe certain drugs to your loved one, whether or not it's best for them. Right. That's when we talk about the system. That's what we're talking about. There's this financial system in place that steers how healthcare is provided. Can you go through the roles of that system? Yeah, because yeah, you, you were sharing that with us in our pre-interview. Yeah. And well, you think, how is one person, how is Susie Singer Carter going to go up against this? And, uh, you know, I'm now looking over my shoulder everywhere I go now, because I, after watching Dope Sick, I'm like, is that person following me? Is that <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so let, let's, let, we can go, let's start at the top. You know, we've got the FDA. Food and Drug Administration yep. that we all believe is th this is the government agency that's 
making sure that the drugs that are approved to be prescribed are safe and effective, that uh, they're watchdogging how the pharmaceutical company, pharmaceutical companies are marketing those drugs. They're going to make sure that they market in a correct way. And they don't necessarily do everything that they're portrayed to be able to do. Okay. So there's pressure in, well, you know, even in dope sick, there's pressure on individuals in the FDA who are employed to review and, and, and approve drugs to make sure that they are safe and effective and that their labeling is proper before they are dis, dis, uh, disseminated to um, patients. They have pressure to cater to the pharmaceutical companies because they want to go work for them at some point, okay? And just like in the Purdue case, Curtis Wright approved OxyContin uh, as safe and effective, and he approved some pretty, I, I'm going to call it lethal language in the package insert that enabled the company to say, hey, the FDA agrees with us that it is uh, that OxyContin is less addictive and less abusable than any other and Curtis Wright, after we approved that, shortly thereafter, went to work for Purdue. And there's nothing illegal about that, okay? That is the system, the system that allows this sort of closing up between the FDA's uh, individuals who work there, closing up to the drug companies because they want to go work and make lots more money than they're getting paid at, at the FDA. And that's part of the, the system in place that is financially driven um, and not patient-driven. Uh, the pharmaceutical companies uh, are out there and they're trying to make as much money as they can off of their drugs. And they're looking for ways to um, cut corners, operate in the gray area, as they did in the Abbott case, where they began marketing Depakote for something that was not approved and not determined to be safe and effective, that is for agitation in, in elderly dementia patients confined to nursing homes. They did that. The FDA is out there and uh, Abbott was able to do, do this illegal marketing for at least eight and maybe more years, okay, before our office, you know, before John and Harold caught up to them. All right. Yeah. So where's the FDA for eight to 10 years? Well, not only do they have this financial pressure on some of the individuals to cozy up to the pharmaceutical companies, but they're also understaffed in terms of how they are reviewing the, the marketing by drug companies. I mean, they have an office of about 50 or 60 employees who basically are responsible for looking at more than 30,000 marketing pieces per year. An impossible task. Wow. So oh my goodness. Yeah. How is that allowed? How, how, who thought that was a good idea? Well, that's, <laughs> you know, Congress is the Congress, which is part of the system are the ones that uh, appropriate money for, for the FDA. <laughs> um, so it's, it, it's, it's not necessarily who thought it was a good idea. It's part of the system. Right. Okay. Right. Uh, so, and of course the insurance companies are out there and they're going to pay, um, they're going to reimburse for what, you know, for, for certain categories of drugs. Um, 
and doctors in nursing homes, you know, and I'm not going to say that this is 100%, but many of the ones that I've looked at are doctors who are doing the nursing home rounds as a side job, as an extra job. They're, that's not their main job. They've got an office where they're seeing patients that are paying them a lot of money. Nursing home patients, by and large, are, you know, there, there are some that are self-pay. At, at some point, they get their money gets used up and they become Medicaid patients. And Medicaid doesn't pay doctors that well. Okay? Right. So this is sort of a side gig for them. So they're not necessarily paying a lot of attention to your loved one who is confined to a skilled nursing facility. In fact, many of them probably don't see your loved one more than once or twice a year. And they're either a nurse or a nurse practitioner. Pr practitioner is actually the person that is seeing your loved one, okay? He's saying the truth, you guys. I mean, I'm going through it right now. Absolutely. It's exactly Absolutely. how Rick is saying it. And that's part of the system because it's, and it's part of the financial system because it's not financially profitable for the physician, the doctor, to spend a lot of time right. with your loved one in the nursing home, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and of course, we've already talked about how the drug companies pay rebates to get their drugs on the formulary. The nursing home wants to make sure that they prescribe the drugs on the formulary because it's cheaper for them. They're getting rebated and incentivized by the drug companies and the pharmacies that, that uh, serve the nursing home. So all of these financial pressures, which include the government, are working together to form a system that you as a loved one uh, who is trying to look after you know, your mom or your grandma or your grandpa in a nursing home, that's the system you're having to fight. And so you have to be very much uh, of a mean person, a questioning person, a skeptical person, and not take the, well, the doctor thinks this is the best thing. Right. I, you might, right. yeah, my way, was this, are you prescribing this because it's on your formulary? Is that why you're prescribing this drug instead of this other drug, which my you know, mother was on right. uh, previously that worked well? Right. When my mom went into hospice, suddenly she was taken off a couple of drugs. And I said, without asking me, and I said, why, why are you doing that? I mean, I thought that's going to keep her comfortable. I'm wondering if it was because they weren't on the formulary because I had to fight to keep her on the blood thinner. Yeah. yeah. And, and we don't know, but you have to question that. You have yeah. to make sure you, that you're factoring that fact into and process, you know, pro using that to process what they're telling you. Okay. Right. And, and maybe you have to ask that point of question. Well, is, you know, is drug A, the one you're giving to her, giving to her now, is that on the formulary? And what about drug B, the one that you didn't give, that you stopped? Is that on your formulary or not? Right. Let's, let's hear what the truth is about that. Right. And can they go outside of the formulary or it's just advantageous or they have to stick to the formulary? Corporate policy probably tells them you have to stick to the formulary. Gotcha. The right. actual what you can and can't do is they can go outside the formulary, but it's going to cost more. Them. It's going to cost them. Them more. It's mm -hmm. going to cut yeah. into the the bottom line. It makes so much sense. So, it makes so much sense. And so corporate managers are probably telling them you cannot go outside the formulary and then they've got to go get permission up the line, I think, to, to, to do that. Uh, and, go, and, and so again, part of the system is they go through those folks that are you're talking to that have to go and ask, well, 
you know, Susie has come and she wants her mother on drug B, which is not a formulary. They have to go through, you know, basically people are, people don't like conflict. Well, now they're in a conflict with their boss and right. the boss's boss. Right. They want to, right. They want, everybody wants to take the path of least resistance. Exactly. That's nature. And you're forcing them into some kind of conflict, which they don't like. I get it. And I don't like it either. I don't like it. And you're so right. I'm just going to keep validating everything you guys say so I can put a face on it and just say, um, you know, my mom has been in desperate need of a wound doctor or specialist to come in. And um, they kept when when she got back to the place that she's at and, and they said, um, yes, we're going to do that. And then it took three weeks to get a nurse practitioner who they told me was better than the doctor. And only once and only once. And now my mom is back in the hospital because of this gigantic, horrible thing on her back. And um, it's awful. And so, um, yeah. And, you know, so you can't you you cannot, unfortunately, you trust anything that's said to you. If you if you smell something's wrong, believe it. Right. Right, John. Exactly. <laughs> I see you shaking you your to, head. Yeah. You have to understand that, that it gets back a little bit to what I was talking about a little earlier is a limited resource in a nursing home. So um, they may take the, the resource away from your mother and put it over here. They move that around, unfortunately, because there's not enough resource to take care of all the needs. So they move that around right. and they do that. Um, to create the, 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 the easiest scenario for the nursing home. So if they get a Susie that comes in and now becomes somewhat disruptive, my mom's not getting this. And, and you know, I've got a problem with it. And I'm gonna be back tomorrow if you don't fix this. So you become the bad person, like you, like you said, you become the bad person too. Now you get the attention, it prompts them to move the resource back to your mother. So that's kind of what you're faced with. You already know this. Um, but it, again, it's, it's, it's the profit motive is, is reducing the amount of resources getting down to the ground is because we're looking to maximize profit, not maximize quality of service. So the amount of services getting down has been minimized because the money has been taken off in another, in another place in the chain. It's like Rick has said, that's, that's the way the system works. Quality of service thus quality of life exactly right so it's amazing though because okay so it's the system and the pharmaceutical company fda the insurance company the skilled nursing okay so it's the circle well how much money that they're making that the resources aren't being you know pushed to the people which is who they're they're supposed to be serving but yet they're compiling this massive profit so when is it enough? It, it, it's, I mean, they keep running to to make this profit. That's great. Well, is is a million dollar profit enough? Is four million dollars profit enough? In the meantime, the people that you're serving are suffering every day. So how does that? How do those scales get back into balance? Because they're horribly out of balance right now. What can be done to get them back into balance? <laughs> That's a huge no. question. Oh boy. That's a huge no. question. <laughs> I know. I know. But, you know, I mean, really? Well, it comes down to how rich can people be? Like nobody needs 
billions of dollars. It's dangerous to have that much money, I think, but that's a whole nother topic. (laughs) But, but is that, is that it? Is that it? It's, 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 and I don't want to say it's as simple as it's profit, but is that what it really, all of this, all of this, the way it's set up, is that really the bottom line here is just, it's just profit. If you're asking me, I say the answer is yes. The way that uh, nursing homes have been run has changed, has evolved over the years. You know, it went from being sort of a local community place um, where the community was involved in it. Uh, their you know, loved ones were in this nursing home. The people from the community worked in the nursing home and people from the community made financial decisions for that nursing home. So there was a lot more... It was more personal, right? You know, the CEO of that nursing home, you know, their their kids went to school with the kids of uh, someone who has a loved one there. So it's all that has now changed to where these nursing homes are now being uh, they're owned and operated by investors. Okay, one or more investors who, who don't live in the community, who you know, put together a group of nursing homes as an investment. They maybe get some other investors in who are have no relationship to that community. And now it just becomes a balance shoot. And the, you know, and, and more of a corporate uh, type of um, entity or, and, and the nursing home is part of that corporate group of, of nursing homes. And the people that are now making the decisions they're not looking at quality of care. That's not one of the factors. They don't get briefed on quality care at their monthly um, you know, meetings. They're getting briefed on uh, profit, return on investment, and if, and if it's a corporation, what's the share price? And the briefing also is, has a discussion on it. And how can we increase each one of those things? What do we need to do to increase them? But never on any kind of those agendas, my opinion, will you find item number four, how do we improve care? Right. That's not going to be on the agenda. And, okay. and, and would you say that they're also motivated, because I'm feeling this, by, you know, that, that they make a lot of decisions based on their fear of liability. So they take the, the path of least resistance in terms of let's do everything not to be liable for, you know, any kind of um, misconduct. I've heard from nurses saying, I can't do that. I don't want to get fired. We're not allowed to do that because we could be liable. You, you might have your, again, your folks that, who are the employees, who are the hands-on people that are worried about getting fired. But I think in our experience that hires up in terms of worrying about liability, John, what, what do you think that the, the CEOs, uh, the owners of a nursing home, how much do you think they worry about liability or, or being caught doing something wrong? Well, what, what, what we've seen is they established policies that possibly are being carried out, but what we've seen in the investigation we've had is people at the upper corporate levels tend to tend to feel assured in the levels of insulation that they have, that they are not walking the halls every day, that they are not taking the complaints from the ground level, that they're, you know, states away. They're making decisions possibly, okay, we're going to, we're going to put money into this. We're going to put money into this. We're not going to put money into this. 
they transmit that down to the people on the ground who are making the decisions that could be facing liability issues. Whereas the corporate people feel like, well, you know, we didn't carry that out. You know, we're, we're here making these decisions. So what we've seen is, is typically they, at the higher levels, they, they tend to feel fairly well insulated. They don't, like Rick says, they don't, they don't seem to, to worry a lot about that kind of liability. Really? So like even if they're caught of misconduct or, or, or like wrongful death or anything like that, they're not driven by that or they're insulated is what you're saying. <clears throat> did I just, did I, did I say something wrong? I think you did. Did I go right there? Is that bad? <laughs> if you have an incident of uh, abuse or an incident of lack of care that takes place at the local level on the part of a nurse or a CNA, <clears throat> tracing the responsibility for that yeah. back through three, four layers of corporate management to an uh, executive vice president or a vice president who may be sitting three, four states away who has not been in that facility, maybe never. Right. So establishing that connection sufficiently to seek any kind of criminal charge is a pretty high burden. And that's, of course, what we did. That's what our job was. And it can be done, but it can be a difficult task. Gotcha. For the average, yes. not for not a, a sleuth mm -hmm. ace investigator and a and a and a fabulous mm -hmm. uh, assistant attorney general. Well, yeah, well, I, I don't know about that, but just let me say, <laughs> and, and you know, and maybe this is a, a topic for another podcast because we did. John has alluded to a case we did after the Abbott case that involved a nursing home and trying to hold uh, the corporate CEO owner who was in Florida liable uh it was very difficult and you know it may be something we can talk about in another podcast because it's a whole story unto itself but um, um the other part of the, going back to the theme of the system okay uh i will also say this my personal opinion is that the department of justice who i worked for for 32 years uh and, and i enjoyed every minute of that job uh, as a federal prosecutor, but the Department of Justice is part of that system as well, okay? And um, as came out in the Purdue case, when the, the folks on the ground wanted to prosecute, uh, you know, executives at Purdue for serious felonies, the Department of Justice, you know, the right. system went into motion. They prevented us from doing that. And I, I believe that the Department of Justice also prevents not only that case, but many other cases where you there, there are laws in place, federal laws in place, a federal law in place, where you could hold executives personally accountable criminally for the conduct of their corporation that violates federal law. And, and, and that Department of Justice, for some reason, and I have spoken about that to them uh, when I was an uh, assistant U.S. attorney are reluctant to use that law. And I think that is also part of the problem, part of the systemic problem in terms of making sure that there's corporate, personal corporate responsibility on the part of CEOs 
wow. and other executives making decisions. So, wow, this is this is daunting because Oof. it's like if they're not worried about <clears throat> any kind of liability and they're they're sufficiently insulated and they feel very cocky about it, then what power do we have as caregivers to other than just being uh, immensely annoying? you know, just to get you that get you off their back. That's it. I mean, other than that, like we do we have any recourse? That, that's a tough question. If yeah. we try, if, if you asked the, in, in part one of this podcast, and there's not a good answer because the caregivers who are facing that system, you've got to fight tooth and nail. You have got to use just about all of your energy and resources just to make sure that your loved one individually gets the care that they need. That doesn't leave much space to go out there and try to change a system that is weighted heavily, heavily against any kind of change. You know, you're talking about a system where you'd have to get Congress to act and they're very much dependent on uh, money from the nursing home lobby, the pharmaceutical company lobby, the physician's lobby. You know, you have all of this money coming into them and to, that, that's, that, again, part of the system that skews against uh, changing it, okay? And so I'm, I'd be very hesitant because I know how much you're, the folks listening to this podcast are going through personally how much energy, how much it takes out of you to just take care of your loved one, especially if they have Alzheimer's. But then on top of that, you're trying to fight a system just to get the care that your loved one, basic care that they need. Mm -hmm. There's nothing left in the tank for those folks. I mean, I don't know how you can then say, okay, now let's take on the system that is so stacked against you. What can you do, Rick? And John, is it is it the the physical being present there? Is that what it is? Is that the they have to see you so they know that somebody is there? Is is that the best approach? Because it sounds like otherwise there there's no there's no going higher. So what you can do on a daily basis for the person that is in this facility in this community is to be there. And show and your face. Even then, Roseanne, even then. Accountability. Well, I know, but it, it it's it's a it's something. A something. It's is, a something. Is that because it sounds like as far as the system's concerned, that's that's a whole nother quagmire. So then what can a caregiver do? John, you were there. I think I think <laughs> you know that 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 is without question. I mean, that's the best thing a caregiver can do. I mean, that's what we've seen. I think you've seen it. You've both seen it. We know that that's the case. Um, You have to be there. You have to be persistent. You have to be uh, a problem if you want your loved one to get the care they deserve. Um, Being there regularly, not giving up, asking questions, asking hard questions, refusing to take answers that are insufficient. Unfortunately, that is the name of the game. Um, beyond that, I know in Virginia there are some resources available. There, there's some uh, here in Virginia. We have a, a state office of Alms Budman for long-term care. 
that's that's a, a legal resource. They also have local offices on aging. I'm sure every state's different. This is strictly Virginia. These people, by and large, we work with them to some degree. They're good people that that know the problems and and really have a desire to do something about them. They're somewhat limited at times, but that's still a resource. Mm-hmm. You know, you may go there, you may make a complaint. Uh, nothing may come of it, but then again, something may come of it. Uh, the departments of the departments of health in the state of Virginia, Virginia Department of Health regulates the nursing homes. Um, that's, that's a, uh, that's another resource. You may go there, you may make a complaint, nothing comes of it, but it possibly could. So that's another layer beyond that. I mean, this is all pat answers that you get. Go to your congressman, go to this, go to that. Sometimes that actually has an effect. Quite honestly, most of the time it doesn't, but sometimes it may. Okay. But to be brutally honest, you get back to what we've been talking about here. You're on the ground. You have to stand up for your level. Mm-hmm. You have to stand up for your level on the, on the local level. And typically, the louder you are, the more persistent you are, the more successful you will be. But that, as, as you know, is a great drain upon yourself as a caregiver. It really is. It really is. It's you know, it's not my nature to be that way. My nature is, you know, uh, I have a disease to please and I want to, you know, and, and um, it's been, it's been hard to walk into a facility and say, good morning. And people go uh, literally grunt at you because you're the enemy. Well, yeah. And there's, and it's fearful because you're only there for that period of time and then you're leaving and they are there with your person. So, you know, you can't be adversarial yeah. because they are with your yeah. person. So there's a very fine line to, to try to Don't balance. Don't go the that, same time, you know? go a different time. That's what I do. <laughs> they never know when I'm coming. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. I, I don't know. It's just something I do. <laughs> yeah. And you know, maybe this is the, crazy idea or answer to your question because it's not one that's easy and it's not one that can happen overnight but it's it's the communities need to just maybe take back those kind of those facilities in their community um and i don't know how you do that but i I do know as a for a fact that when nursing homes were locally owned and you know operated by people in the local community there was more you know not to say they were perfect i'm sure there were there were issues but there was more of a uh, feeling of service to the patient versus service to the financial well-being of a corporation um but i don't know how you do that you know it's 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 money is what really talks these days in in terms of our society mm-hmm. uh, everybody wants to be an investor and everybody that invests wants to have a return on their investment so you know i don't know how many if, if you own any kind of a stock portfolio you may have uh, stocks in nursing homes and and the nursing homes are feeding your stock portfolio so are you going to really complain that much about it i don't know uh, but to me that seems to be in terms of a fix how do we you know, get people in the community to pull together their resources, maybe 
and say, we want to get this nursing home back and we want to make sure it's taking care of our loved ones. Right. Because yeah. we live long enough, we're all going to be there. So. We're all going to be there, God willing, <laughs> as my mom would say. But but John, I have a question for you. It, are are the nursing homes not held to the same medical standard as a as a hospital? Because I feel like why is the why are the hospitals seem to be? I'm not saying they're perfect either, but they seem to be more uh, judicious about the kinds of um, steps that they take, and they seem to be very concerned about doing the right thing. It seems like they're there's much more concern about liability. Are there different uh, standards that they have to satisfy as opposed to a nursing home? Uh, my thinking is that, at least in the state of Virginia, the amount of oversight and the amount of regulation for nursing facilities may not lie at the same level as for a hospital. Rick may know a little more about this than I do. There is still a, an amount of oversight. They still are held to, to certain standards. Um, whether, whether or not it is as closely monitored as, let's say, a hospital, I'm not, I'm not really that familiar. I, I, I do not think they're held to the same standards. I do not think they're regulated by the same bodies, nor are they held to the same standard. That's a big chasm, especially in a skilled nursing home where they're working with Foley catheters and G-tubes and massive wounds on people that are, you know, bedridden. Those things are, are medical services that they are providing to our loved ones, and yet the standard is different. And that seems, that seems, uh, that doesn't seem right, Rick. Yeah, I think the hospitals are probably on a higher standard. There are probably some mm -hmm. state licensing standards that they have to meet. They also have, um, they're, they're doing procedures that are invasive a lot more. And so there's a higher degree of liability in terms of malpractice. Uh, there's a lot of regulation of hospitals because through uh, the state agencies in terms of uh, licensing all of the staff in a hospital. Um, nursing homes, on the other hand, have they're, they're basically their regulations stem from a federal regulation uh, under uh, HHS, Health and Human Services. But the standards are very kind of vague. For example, as we talked about in part one, um, there are no minimum staffing requirements for nurses and certified nursing assistants and the like in a uh, in any of those regulations. Unbelievable. Um, the um, uh, the insurance coverage on nursing homes is substantially different from hospitals, right? Hospitals are covered by large uh, insurers like Blue Cross, and so there's a lot more money that hospitals can earn by providing more services, whereas nursing homes, uh, you're either self-pay or Medicaid. Right. And nursing homes will go through a self-pay patient's resources pretty quick and turn them into a Medicaid patient. And Medicaid's payments are limited. Okay. Right. So there's less money to be made uh, in a nursing home setting. The, the standards and regulations are a lot more vague. Um, and, you know, basically it's, it's, it's the language is sort of like uh, to the tune of, must provide care to sufficiently thrive. You know, what does all that mean in terms of specifics? It doesn't really mean right, anything. Right, right. Wow. So, uh, and we talked about, 
we'll talk about one of the ways because understaffing seems to be the root of a lot of the problems in nursing homes. We talked about getting that the states really could solve that problem by imposing minimum staffing requirements. Mm-hmm. And it was, it, 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 I hear this story more and more, and it's, it's ridiculous. One CNA is taking care of 50 patients on an overnight shift is ridiculous, but that is there's nothing to prevent that, okay? Nope. That is that is not unusual. That's not uh, contrary to regulation, but it's certainly insufficient. If you you know you all know that just from observation, but uh, it would be a whole different thing if there was a requirement that uh, the states, each of the states, imposed that said no for fifty patients, you got to have three or four or whatever the number is that experts say should, there should be. Uh, that would really, I think, would would go a long way, wouldn't solve everything completely, but would go along, be a huge step in making things better, conditions better in nursing homes. So yeah, there are two different standards. Nursing homes are not regulated as much as hospitals. They're not, they don't, their standards aren't as high as hospitals. They're, the root of the problem those are understaffed. Everything goes back to that. You know, if there's ex- excessive pressure source, not, not enough staff to turn patients adequately that aren't able to do it themselves. Uh, not enough patients to treat, not enough staff to treat those those wounds. That's right. If there's if there's malnutrition and if there's um, um, dehydration, not enough staff to adequately feed the residents. They can't feed that's themselves. Right. Not enough staff to make it, that's that's the root in my my personal opinion. The yeah. Root most of the problems 100 percent, 100 percent, and the, and yeah. also the fact that yep. they're not held to the same standard because they are they are you know providing medical services right and the reason why my mom is in the hospital again is because of a medical service that they weren't pr- providing properly and i kept saying it to them are you sure that should be in my mom had a catheter are you sure that should be in there that long that was from the hospital what well, made it easier on them and, and yes. right. So she ended up hemorrhaging because it was just in there too long. And that that's frightening. Well, right. But in a nursing home, if most of the most of the people that live there are are on Medicaid and Medicaid doesn't pay a lot is it sounds like it's rife for the deals with the pharmaceuticals to make that extra money to make up for the Medicaid not paying as much. And it's, it sounds like that's the, just the cycle. That's the, that's the wheel. Wouldn't it be because Medicaid only has so much, they only have so many resources for each state for the number of people on Medicaid. So it's just that it's that continual, well, how do we get more money? Well, if we get, if the pharmaceutical company can pay us and if the, if we can uh, alleviate some of the loss from the Medicaid payment or lack thereof, is that part of this system? Absolutely. I mean, when, when profit motive is what drives what drives the show, there's there's profit to be made on both sides of the coin. You bring in as much money as you can. That's why a lot of nursing homes push for uh, Medicare rehab patients. They like right. to get Medicare rehab patients in a lot of their beds because they get more money. Right. So yes. maximize the money that's coming in. Get more Medicare rehab, not as many Medicaid patients. That's for yep. You know, private pay, more money. So you try to maximize on that side. Bring in as much money as you can. Then you go to the other side, try to minimize all the money that goes out. 
where are things that you can do that with? Well, instead of hiring 100 people for a facility, you hire 50. So you can cut your payroll in half. So what happened to that other 50% of payroll? It went, in, it went in the bottom line. It went in the bottom line. So then you manipulate the other expense categories. You, maybe you, you uh, instead of buying a, a diaper that says the quality A, you, you buy a B, a B minus. You right. save money. Right. The patient's not getting as good a diaper, but you save money. Right. So you've constantly got those manipulations by leadership in these things to work the money. And, and often, of course, the results of all this is where it's the patient, it's the resident that's not getting what they need. The resource that's finally spit out by all this is insufficient. So now local staff is trying to allocate that limited resource. Right. But how is it done in the hospital? Like, why can my mom go into a hospital with her Medicare and Medicaid? Why, why, is she, why does she get the better service there as opposed to in a nursing home? The patient mix, and, you know, and I've heard this term used also, patient mix is also one of the part, is part of the system, right? So all of these facilities look at what is the what patient mix should we have to maximize profits? Well, patient mix means how many private insurance patients do you have? How many Medicaid patients do you have? Mm-hmm. How many Medicare rehab patients do you have? That number, that's your patient mix. So it offsets, Hospital, yeah. Hospitals have their normal natural patient mix, I think, is such that they have a lot more private insurance. Gotcha. Private insurance doesn't yeah. Unless you have long-term care insurance, you know, your typical Blue Cross and Aetna and all those don't pay for long-term care in a nursing home. No, no. It's only only Medicaid. Medicare rehab for up to 100 days only. After that, you know, no coverage. And Mm -hmm. self-pay. And then the few patients who manage to, you know, buy uh, long-term care insurance. But eventually... All your self-pay patients are turned into Medicaid patients. Yeah, and by the way, self uh, those the long-term insurance, at least in California, um, there's no regulation on that. People that I know that have bought it, uh, they they the rules change when they go to use it. Mm-hmm. It's suddenly like it's not for mm-hmm. the rest of your life; it's for or, a certain amount of years. No, yeah, yeah. If the company's yeah. still and, and if the company's be, still available, yeah, and then they'll become Medicaid patients. So really, the patient right. mix in a nursing home. Is, very much heavily Medicaid, which is lower reimbursement than right. in a hospital where, okay, your mom's a Medicaid patient, but she's only one out of, you know, and there's, for, for her, there's there's 25 others that have private insurance or something else. So, so they don't yeah. have to, you know, any- It offsets, so it offsets the loss. This. It offsets. Right. And think about wow. this, what is the biggest cost in- not only a nursing home, but pretty much any business these days. Employee. What is your biggest cost? Healthcare. Healthcare. Well, but but the healthcare is part of employee benefits. Employee, so it's yeah, your, it's employees. Your, yeah, it's personnel. Yep. Yeah, right. Right. Yeah. So Absolutely. to get the biggest to maximize your profit, you want to and you want to cut costs the most. You cut people. You cut staff. <laughs> right. That's just and until. There's a, a required minimum number of staff per patient in a nursing home. 
they're going to be chronically understaffed. And with COVID, there's not a part of our society that hasn't been affected by it. I mean, there was a whole story on on, K, on KCRW yesterday about teachers for special ed students. There's not enough teachers anymore who are, and so they're yeah. hiring people that aren't qualified yeah. just to have bodies. And this is what's happening in nursing homes. They're training as they go which yeah. I, I, I saw that, I witnessed that, and I understand it, but there needs to be some transparency to us so that we know as, as caregivers and residents what we're up against. So just give us a fair, you know, you know, because I think one of the things that you said that was very profound in our pre-interview was that, you know, it doesn't matter how much you spend on your care, or, and what the advertising says and how beautiful the brochure is and the rating system on it, because they're all the same. I'm sorry to have such a depressing conversation, you guys, <laughs> but let's get real because, you know, I, I want to live a long time. I don't want to end up like that. And I don't think you do. Sometimes I say it's a blessing. My mom has Alzheimer's because she doesn't really realize what a burden she seems to be to most people. You know what I mean? And that's sad to me. That, that hurts my feelings. And um, I'm glad that she doesn't know that. Well, it's also one of those things where people don't realize until they're in it and then they get in it and they're like, wait a minute, what is this? <laughs> is this how it is? And it's like, yeah, that's how it yeah. is. And that, I don't know how you, it, it, it needs to be more prevalent. To, we need to talk about it more. So people understand that this is this is the path. You can't keep up with these costs. There's no way you can you can save enough money to pay for your care as you age. There's just you're going to run through it, and everybody winds up on Medicaid. And I don't think people realize that everybody winds up on Medicaid eventually because you've run through. If your you money. live long enough, there yeah. might be there might be a little there might be a small percentage of gazillionaires that don't. But for the rest of us eventually that's what happens. And there has to be some sort of a, a better setup for that. I'm sorry, Rick, I started to speak and I cut you off, I believe. No, no, that's, um, no, I, 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 I think you're right. And again, you know, the, to me, we're not gonna change the system because it's been in place for so long. Um, right. Congress is beholden to monies from nursing home owners, you know, and uh, other people in the healthcare industry from pharmaceutical companies, uh, and, and they're not going to pass any kind of legislation that limits themselves from receiving that money. And then, but but the one thing that seems that would make things better, not perfect, but better, is to somehow get the state's regular, you know, the, the state legislatures to impose minimum staffing requirements. So, uh, you know, and, and the problem is, is this, that um, it, it, I've had conversations with people about their loved one in a nursing home many times, and they talk about how, well, they're not, you know, People don't come and check on them on a timely basis. They're not taken to the bathroom. They're not changed when they wet, you know, get wet and all that kind of stuff uh, on a timely basis. 
And unfortunately, I've gotten to the point where I say, you know what? Unfortunately, that is just the way it is in every nursing home in the country because they're understaffed. Um, and I, I hate that I have that. That's my view. Uh, but unfortunately, I think it's the reality. And how do you fix that so that it, you know, you're not going to make things go from being bad to now, hey, they're great, but right. you could make it no. going from being bad to being better if right. they had enough staff there to, you know, right. get people up and feed them that need that need to help and turn them so they don't get pressure sores right. and change them in a timely way if they get, if they soil themselves right. and all that. If they had enough people to do that in a timely basis, and it wouldn't right. take a lot, but unfortunately, you know, it would cut into corporate profits. So sorry to do that, but it <laughs> would improve health, their care. Right. Uh, but what, what could we do right. to in like, what would incentivize them to do that then? Because they're, like you said, it's bottom line. So what would, in, what would be the incentive to do that? other than some kind of standard that they have to be held to and what, and, and the repercussions of not being held to that standard. It seems like other than that, we're just saying, be good guys. And, you know, like, I mean, where do we get our leverage from? I know you're saying the system is tight and it's really locked up, but what part of the system isn't, is there any, is there any hole in that system that I can fit through? I'm tiny. I'm not, I'll just get, I'll go through it. You've got to get to your state legislators, the ones who mm. pass the laws for the state, and somehow convince them that you don't have to be addicted to the money from the nursing home lobby. You need to make, you know, do something that's going to help our loved ones improve their lives and pass legislation that says nursing homes have to have a minimum right. number, a minimum staffing requirement. That's my. That's the only thing I can think of, John. Yeah. Uh, no, I mean I think that's in a nutshell. And and you know I, I hope I'm not speaking without a sufficient basis here, but I believe I have seen in the news that possibly there has been some talk by the Biden administration about the need for staffing standards in nursing facilities. I, I don't think I'm wrong there, and I. I hesitate to even mention that because I, I don't really know any of the details. Okay. But I, I, I do seem to remember that I have seen some something along those lines in the media. So the fact that government at some level is talking about this to me is, is, is some yeah. grounds for hope because that's how it starts. You have to talk right. about it. You have to acknowledge mm-hmm. a need. And I think everybody in the industry knows this is the problem. And I think in America, our society, I won't say we got blindsided by this problem, but we we should have seen it coming and we didn't. Yep. But over the last several decades, we all know our elderly population has grown fairly substantially. Yes. So we as a society didn't see this, maybe didn't acknowledge this, that, hey, People are living longer. Yep. We're getting more elderly people with the problems that go along with that. So all of a sudden now we have <clears throat> a demand on a system that probably wasn't up to handling it. Mm-hmm. Would have been a problem in and of itself. And then we throw in the fact that, hey, guess what? These are This is a great area to make a lot of money. Okay? Mm-hmm. The money that comes in is good. It's mostly coming from the government. 
So the money's pretty secure coming in and we can play around with what we're spending going out. So we can make a lot of money here. Mm-hmm. So we throw those two factors together. Right. And I think that's given rise to where we are today. Um, and unfortunately, who's trying to bear the brunt of dealing with that? It gets down to the people like you two on the ground, trying to make sure your your loved ones are getting some level of care. But getting government to at least acknowledge and talk about this, I think, is a, is a beginning. Uh, like Rick says, you know, it's, a, it's, it's obviously an uphill battle getting actual legislature. But, hey, before Obamacare, there was no national health insurance. Oh, yeah. No. Right. Yes. So, right. so, so it's got to start somewhere. Saying, yeah. yeah. Exactly. You got to start somewhere. Yeah. It's a whisper to a, to a conversation, to a yelling, to a let's fix this. <laughs> Look, I think there's nothing better, more, more important for me to do as I'm a filmmaker, but you know, this will become a film. It has to, and, and because I'm seeing too much and, um, and, and it's deep. I mean, it's multi, like you said, you know, and on an, on a human level, it, it becomes an, uh, a, a journey that is, I mean, so massive that I'm, I'm obsessed with it right now because I see, I feel like I'm, I possibly have enough energy to do it. I don't, I don't know. I'll see. I feel, you know, I have, I, I I feel like I was blessed with a lot of energy, so I should make the best of it and, and see what I can do with that. And, and also I'm extremely emotional. So, you know, I, I, I'm on both sides. I feel like, I feel like, you know, Maybe I have good tools to do at least make some noise and bang the drum and pots and pans, at least get some, you know, some ears and eyes on a situation that is, is probably the worst crisis we could have right now because it's a financial crisis. It's a, it's an emotional crisis and it's, um, uh, it's got to be a universal crisis. We can't be the only country like this. I mean, this has got, you know, we are, we have just just marginalized. I know ours is the worst. I'm going to, I'll, I'll put, I'll put myself on the line and say that, but we have <laughs> marginalized the hell out of aging and um, see it as a, you know, a liability and an embarrassment as opposed to part of yeah, and a celebration. So that's just crappy. <laughs> that's just crappy and I can't I mean it's just the worst so um so anywhere in that system I guess the the our own our best bet as you said I'm going to repeat is to is legislation and to continue to because I know people have tried and I know they get turned down wasn't there a big report that just came out a 600 page report Roseanne that was like mm-hmm, mm-hmm. To re a revamping of the uh, of the nursing home system, and the last time it was revamped was in 1987, <laughs> which is insane. Or 83. It was. It's yeah. insane. Yeah. And it was dismissed. It's got to make it through its system. It's got to make it up the chain. And and uh, I mean, we've heard we've heard why the the resistance is there, and it makes perfect sense when you when you lay it out like that. It makes perfect sense. And then it's just a matter of how we go forward with this. All right, back to the happy news. So, John, 
Back to you, Back Susie. To <laughs> so I, okay. So back to having news, John, what's the most egregious thing you, you found on, when you were boots on the ground? I'll tell you mine and you tell me yours. <laughs> uh, I would say, you know, in the Abbott case, um, and, and there's, there's obviously many facets to that investigation, to that case. There was a lot of elements involved <clears throat> all across the healthcare industry, pharmaceuticals, medical. I think what, what concerned me the most that I saw in that case was, you know, the pharmaceutical companies, they operate pretty simply. They're, they're in business to make money. They're in business to develop products and sell them and make money. Okay, that's, that's why they operate the way they do. Um, but I guess what would concern me the most is the elements in the medical community and I'm talking about researchers, I'm talking about medical doctors, uh, practitioners that seem to be more than willing to maybe not carry out their, their standards uh, in what they did and how they, how they interpreted things and how they did their activities. Um, because to me, people in the medical community, they take an oath that they're held to a higher standard. That's right. Uh, so, you know, to say the most egregious thing I, I saw in that particular case, that that was an area of concern for me because I know, at least in my parents' generation, you know, if you were a doctor, what you said was gospel. Right. They, they yes. never challenged anything. Having that no. medical affiliation, it's like they, and, and of course, I don't think most of us nowadays are at that point, but I know at least at one point in America, Americans were. Yeah. So that's a lot of yeah. power. That's a lot of power right there. Just because someone has a medical degree or whatever after their name. So to me, to see somebody in that position and then take that position and turn it around and distort it somewhat for their own gain, that that was bothersome to me. I agree with you. I and I saw I've seen that. I saw that personally <sighs> recently. And and you know, so much for the Hippocratic oath and and you know, um and, and I think, again, going back to what you said, Rick, that even the doctors are understaffed, you know, so for, so they're, they're doing, they're doing the, the, the minimal amount because they don't feel they, I'm, I'm sure like one of the doctors I know that's, you know, is an old, is older and, and I think tired and, you know, and, and as up against the system too. So it's better, it's easier to just go with the flow. And not, you know, not not fight for their patients because they're just tired. And I get it. I get it. I'm not, you know, I, I can't even, I don't, I don't know. I only think we can blame what's like, you know, the fish smells at the head. Is that the same? Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that's <laughs> <laughs> the other one I won't say because it's no. ugly. Mm -mm. But, um, you know, I. I, I do think that everybody is 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 in the process is a victim of of whoever's above them, and and then the lack of regulation that protects them as well as us, right? Does that make sense? Well, it sounds like the Abbott case and the Purdue case ran the same course, in that we're gonna we're going to say that this provides this to patients when really it was over here. And then it just kind of ran. Is that pretty accurate? 
that Abbott kind of followed Purdue's playbook? It, it, Purdue with Oxycontin and Abbott with Depakote, I should it, say. It's accurate in a general sense. Uh, so um, in the Purdue case, it was um, basically just lying about the drugs, uh, the dangers of Oxycontin, basically lying and saying that Oxycontin was less addictive and less prone to being abused than other opioids, than the competitor opioids. Similarly, what Abbott did was to, well, they, they maybe even took it a step further. They took a drug that was approved for one set of uses, you know, epilepsy, bipolar mania, prophylaxis for migraine headaches, Mm-hmm. And market it for something that was completely outside of those uses. That is treatment of, of agitation and aggression in elderly dementia patients, primarily in nursing homes. And the FDA had made it clear to them that they would not sign on to uh, any kind of approval for that, that use, even if they did studies that were successful. So in, in some respects, it was com- they went completely outside the lane uh, to promote that drug, whereas Purdue, they took a drug that was a pain drug, promoted it for pain, but lied completely about whether it was addictive or abusable or not. And, and, and even, the result, of course, was much more um, clear and much more devastating because now we have the opioid crisis as a result of that, and 100,000 people a year are dying of opioid overdoses. But Abbott, in similar fashion, and, and many other forms, you know, if, if you go and look at the Department of Justice's website at their press releases over the years, beginning back into the mid to the late 1990s up to the present, there have been dozens of settlements with pharmaceutical companies for the unlawful and improper marketing of their particular drug. Mm-hmm. Uh, dozens of do- dozens upon dozens and some companies have done, had it done to, you know, they've been caught multiple times, uh, always resulting in a large monetary fine and restitution and all that. But, and, and rarely have they involved holding a corporate decision maker an individual responsible. So it's the cost of doing business, basically. And Abbott did, you know, they went about it in a very blatant and uh, I think arrogant way. They set up a whole division within the company that was devoted to marketing it for an unapproved use. I mean, part of their organizational structure included a box for this long-term care division to promote the drug for something that was blatantly not approved in that in that realm. Oh my gosh, that was pretty arrogant. Uh, yeah, and, um, and and then they used um, they used these clinical studies, which John can speak to probably in more detail because he kind of focused in on that. They took clinical studies that basically failed. That said that oh, well, Depakote doesn't really do anything more than you know, placebo, it doesn't really address that. And cherry picked language out of that to promote, to use those to promote the drug to doctors. And what they were doing was, was trying to evade these, the OBRA 87 regulations of antipsychotics. And they were saying we, that those regulations don't apply to us. 
if you have agitation or aggression in elderly, elderly dementia patients, nursing homes, mm-hmm. and doctors prescribing you from nursing homes, if you prescribe Depakote, then you don't have to worry about this strict scrutiny you would get if you prescribed an antipsychotic. So, John, I don't know if you want to add to that. Yeah, the, the whole thing with the clinical studies, as Rick said, there, there was no approved use for this drug for agitation and, and dementia. So um, they were looking at a situation where this had been one of their flagship drugs, and they were about to lose their patent protection. And had, this was drug about there a long time. So you've got a limited amount of time left before you lose patent. Um, so they, uh, their theory was that, hey, you know, based on research, we think that this drug actually is therapeutic to the, the uh, underlying disease here, okay? Mm-hmm. The, the Depakote actually treats the ailment in the brain that causes dementia. So that was their theory. Aye, aye, aye. You, oh, my goodness. You want a clinical trial that is going to show that. So they geared up to do this trial. Now, keep in mind, you know, Rick mentioned that they set up a, a whole sales division. So they, they had already set up this sales division. This sales, this sales people are already going out there marketing this drug, you know, to treat dementia patients with agitation. At the same time, now they're saying, oh, we're going to do this study to show that this works. So they gear it up and... Um, they started out and, and it, it did very poorly. They shut it down pretty, pretty soon after they started it. They started to revive it at a later time, but they never did. So they had no clinical studies to take to the FDA to show that this drug is actually therapeutic, therefore it needs, it needs to be approved for this use. All during this time period, they had salespeople out there marketing this drug to treat this condition. So the, the clinical trials was, that was gonna be that past to let them get out there and do this, but they were doing it when they didn't even have a clinical Anyway. Trial. And their theory just, it, it never, it just never held up. This drug was not therapeutic to the underlying condition. No. So um, as Rick said, that's kind of, a blatant operation when when you don't even have the trial, you're trying to set up a trial to cover what you're already doing. Because they because they can be arrogant because because of that system, they feel insulated, like you said. So there's this arrogance that, and that that could bleed over not just in our senior, you know, med. Uh, community, but into all communities that that use medication. We don't. We really are at the mercy. Yeah. Of I I mean I don't even know what how do you trust anything like you know I remember one 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 of my a friend of mine who's a nurse said oh you know metformin is really good for losing weight which is like a diabetic uh-huh. drug and she's like all my friends are on it do you want some it's like no I don't I don't want that no thank you so there's there's the drug how do you find out like legitimate information about the drugs is it drugs.com is are they shaded like how do you find this out so that if 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 a doctor says okay we're going to try this drug 
I mean, I go to drugs.com. I go to, I, I go to the NIH. I look everything up, but then is that, is that what you should do? Because in my mind, I think, well, if, if somebody comes to the doctor and says, I have this pill and it will treat this, doesn't the doctor look at that or do they just go by what's on that paper? Like here, we have these clinical trials that we're lying to you about, but it says it does this. Like, how do you, how do you maneuver through all of that? Answer your question as, as um, ludicrous as it may sound, doctors do listen to the non-medically trained pharmaceutical rep that walks through their door as they did in the, as they did in the case of, of Purdue and Oxycontin, much to my, much to my um, shock that a physician who've been to medical school for, you know, four years plus uh, on top of their college education and been done a residency for, I don't know how many years, two to four years after that, somebody just out of college walks into their door with their history degree or whatever, not to, not nothing wrong with history degrees, or let's say my degree business economics, they walk through the door and say, let me just tell you all about this drug and they give them a marketing pitch and the, and the doctors, you know, they, they go along with it. I guess it's, it's easier again, path of least resistance. Right, Is it right. easier for a doctor to spend two hours of their free time researching and reading? How? They can't, things? they can't. They can't. They it's can't. impossible. I remember yeah. when my brother was on Oxycontin, I literally called his doctor and said, why are you prescribing my brother 900 milligrams of Oxycontin a day? What? He goes, do you know that your brother had uh, a laminectomy and a back surgery? I go, yeah, I do. Because I had the same surgery. I had a laminectomy. I had a ruptured disc. I go, I know how bad it feels. And I said, Nope, nobody needs to be on that much Oxycontin or pain medicine. I didn't even know what Oxycontin was. I just knew it was pain medicine. I was like, why are you prescribing so much to him? And he said, everybody's pain level is different. The end. That's what he told me. And, he and that was the Purdue marketing spiel. That he was parroting to you what the marketing uh, right. discussion was that came out of Purdue. Yep. Yeah. It was horrible. So, um, so let's recap. You guys are great. I love you to bits. You guys are um, great. Know your enemy. I'm, I'm quoting you, John, <laughs> know your enemy. If you can go be there, be present. If you can't be present, there's records. You can ask for them. You can ask for what your loved ones on, ask them to give you a list of the drugs that they're on and do your research Go, whatever you can do, go to drugs.com, go to, to uh, the NIH, go to the CDC. It's on us. We have to protect ourselves yeah. and we have to be vocal. So did I miss Advocate. anything else? I'll say one thing. It, I would say, add to that list, it's okay to be a mean person when you're advocating for your loved one, especially in a nursing in the nursing home system. And that's because you're fighting the system. You're not fighting those individuals. Beautiful. Keep that in mind. Beautifully said. That's, that is, yes. that is yes. good to know. And I'm, and I'm going to remind myself all the time because I've literally walked in and said, I, I don't want to be this person. Please stop making me be this person, you know? And, um, and I, just the other night, one of the nurses walked out and the other nurse stayed behind. And she said, if I, if that was my mom, I'd do the same thing. You're doing a good thing. And I mm -hmm. broke into tears because I was like, can I hug you? Thank you. Wow. I mean, if these two 
people that this, this is what they do for or did for a living. It's, it's like, and say mm-hmm. how hard it is. Can you only imagine for us? So, um, but of course there's power in numbers and it's got to start somewhere. So it needs to start. Yeah. So if you have stories, let's tell, let's tell the stories. They're really powerful. I know that as a filmmaker yes. doing the film on my mom has really resonated and it makes a difference. If you can tell a personal story, dope sick, that Hulu put on was, that was a brave story to tell. And, and it's, and it was important. If you haven't seen it, watch it. It's hard to watch. Roseanne was like every, she's like, I can't watch anymore. It's I'm so frustrated. I'm so frustrated. My goodness. <laughs> and I said, you, Rick, I don't, I don't know, man. I don't know how you did it, Rick. I don't know how you did it. Yeah. I, I think part, as I look back, part of how I was able to do that or be in that case and, and, push through that case was because, and it was from a really small office, was because of people like, you know, in both the Apple case as well, because of people like John and Harold. And being in a small office was an advantage because, you know, John and I have worked together for over 30 years. Harold and I had worked together for even longer than that. And so by the time we got into these cases, you know, we've, we've, we know each other. We had a personal you know, relationship mm-hmm. with each other and you can do a lot more when you are working with people like that, that, you know, that you have a relationship with that, that all are pulling towards the same goal that have no personal agendas, no monetary agendas other than trying to do the right thing. Right. So, yes. so that is, you know, I couldn't have done that by myself in the normal environment without people like John and Harold, you know, being able to work with them and and see them on a day-to-day basis and know that we were all about just getting, doing the right thing and not having all these other agendas out there and being able to withstand the, the, the um, opposition that was presented in those cases. You got to have a group of people that help you do that. You really do. You got to find like-minded people in any situation that you're trying to get something done and, and you have to find your tribe Thank you. And thank you. And yeah. thank you for all of the work that you've done, that both of you have done. And Harold. And Harold. And Harold, because it's it's it made a difference. And you're, it made you're a huge honest difference. and honorable men that have integrity and are not afraid to stand up. And I thank you at whatever personal cost it may have cost you away from your families and away from anything else that you wanted to do in your life. But it was important and it was it, it's you know, thank, thank you. you. Yeah. Thank and you. thank you for being just such amazing men anyway. Like Rick knows I love you. Mm-hmm. And um, and you've been so helpful with me just on a personal level, just supporting what I'm going through. And John, I I, I just thank you so much too. You're a delight. And I um everybody just uh keep keep on keep on trying. Don't give up. We are strong together and um follow Roseanne everywhere on, on hayro.com and on her <laughs> wonderful podcast, um, Daughterhood, the podcast. And and, the and podcast. also uh, thank you for listening and wa- or watching us on Love Conquers Alls and um, share our shows with other people that you think might need this information and especially this episode. And you know why, <laughs> you guys? Is- because... <laughs> Because you'll just keep going. Yeah, I'm just going to keep going. Because as a matter of fact, here's why. Because love is powerful, love is contagious, and love conquers all. And it really does. Yeah.